0: Good morning. This is lesson 33 in our study of the book of Hebrews. And we are, uh, the title of the message is, at this moment in time, Keeping the Faith. Although I have thought about changing it to Where the Rubber Meets the Road. But, But I have to say, when I, when I went to the title Keeping the Faith, my memory, which is really bad, went back to a story I had read in Reader's Digest years ago, and I confess to you, I've used it before, but it's been so long ago, you will have forgotten it, and if you think I forgot that I told it before, you can just chalk it up to senility. But the story was told by a Roman Catholic priest at Notre Dame that he had left the building when it was nighttime, and he was walking through a dark alley, and a man approached him and stuck a gun in his ribs and said, Give me your wallet. Well, the priest was more than happy to oblige. But as he reached in to get his wallet, the man noticed his collar. And it took him back and he says, Are you a priest? He said, Well, yes, I am. I don't rob priests. And, and, and so the priest was greatly relieved that he, he, while he was in there, he, he, his hand brushed across some cigars he had in his pocket along with his wallet. And, and so he said, well, g- gee, thanks, um, have a cigar. And the guy said, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I've given them up for Lent. <laughs> that was titled, Keeping the Faith. There are actions that are appropriate to faith. And uh, as we come to Hebrews chapter 13... Uh, that is what we are talking about. What kind of actions are consistent with keeping the faith? Or to put it in different terms, what does endurance really look like? Because that is what the book of Hebrews is about, persevering and enduring in our faith. So what are the kinds of things that ought to characterize that? Now, remember... Where endurance comes from, we've we've seen, of course, in the early chapters of Hebrews that it comes through the sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work as our great high priest. That's where endurance ultimately comes from. And so the exhortation comes in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, that we ought to run the race with endurance. We ought to do so with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, for it is he who has suffered the maximum amount, as we talked about at the Lord's table this morning. It is he who has endured suffering far greater than we will ever imagine. So we need to look to him. And then he says, endurance comes from discipline. The discipline that comes from the Father, the difficulties of life. It's really there that we uh, that we learn how to follow him. I was thinking about that in relationship to last week's message and talking about the spectacular events of Mount Sinai. Those events did not produce endurance, as you know, even after crossing the Red Sea. It didn't take long for the grumbling to begin. But what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is, I let difficult times come your way. I let you be hungry. I let you thirst. It was the disciplined times that brought about endurance or was supposed to bring about endurance in the life of the saints. And so he reminds us in Hebrews chapter 12, that discipline is evidence that we are his children and that God as a father is working in our lives. And then in verses 14 through 17, he tells us about our responsibility, once again, toward others. Not only for their good, but also for the good and the health of the, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to that contrast in verses 18 uh, through 24 of Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. All of the grand things, but he says, we have not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion, and he describes that spiritual city that is yet ahead for us. And then at the end of that chapter, he says that there is going to be a shaking that takes place before that city, as it were, is brought to us. It shakes out those things that do not last, but those things which endure will not be destroyed. And so he's saying to us, don't be easily shaken in your faith because we have an unshakable kingdom. And then we turn to chapter 13, and we see what endurance looks like in terms of practice. Now, here's the way I understand the layout of our text. It seems to me that the major instruction here is, let the the love of the brethren continue. Pursue and be persistent in loving your brethren. Now, when we come to the next section, it's going to have to do with following your leaders. But here, the main theme, as I see it, is the love of the brethren. That is manifested in various ways. So in verse 2, it's manifested in the form of hospitality to strangers. In verse 3, it is manifested in terms of compassion toward those who are either imprisoned for their faith or in some way are being persecuted for their faith and then in verse 4 it is manifested by honoring marriage and finally in verses 5 and 6 it is manifested in a life that is lived free from the love of money so let's talk about brotherly love uh, first of all i've said in your notes that brotherly love is a command and i should i should give you this caveat and that is in our text it is not an imperative But in other texts, it is. For example, you remember that Jesus says in John 15, verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. I think that's pretty clear. It is a command. And you have it also in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Love one another from the heart. So it's clearly a command. It is something that is not optional for us, but it is something that is mandatory for believers. He says brotherly love must endure. That word is a kind of an interesting word, and I'm going to say it's a perseverance word. It is the word that you might not expect to to find in John chapter 15. But when Jesus says, you are to abide in my word, you are to abide in me, it is that word. And, and it's in my way of viewing this text, what he is saying is that love must continue. Now, the inference is that love has already gone on. That is, there has been evidence of brotherly love in the past. We see that in chapter 10, where they visited the prisoners. In fact, you see a number of the things that are described here are described in chapter 10 as something already practiced by these Hebrew saints. So he says it is something that must endure, that must persevere. And the inference is that somehow it may just kind of fizzle out. It may just somehow go away. If you read in the book of Revelation, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, then you see that somehow that first love has just kind of gone away uh, and, and, and without even the church seemingly being aware of it. Why is brotherly love commanded? Well, I've got a few suggestions. One is from John chapter 13 and verse 35. It's proof of discipleship. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's pretty important. And so I would say it surely ought to be commanded. When you go back to the... Uh, to the Old Testament and the summary of the Old Testament, remember there are two commands, love God and love your neighbor, which is exactly what we're talking about here. And so it is, it is clearly one of the great commands of Scripture. And then I go on to say, somebody said it this morning in worship, uh, brotherly love doesn't necessarily come easily. And, and, and the flaw is two-sided, if we have to be honest. A, the flaws in me. I'm not always a very good lover of, of others. And and B, I might as well tell you, some of you aren't always lovable. <laughs> and you could say, amen, brother, same for you. It's true. Sometimes we're just not, we're not lovable. And especially when you think of a church that has diversity. It's one thing when you have a church where everybody looks alike and thinks alike and is in the same spectrum of life, but when you have great diversity, then you have differences of opinion, and, and, and that means that there's going to be frictions and rubbing, and we just need brotherly love because it does not come naturally, and it does not come easily. It is the work of God in our lives, and hard times are coming, and, and hard times are hard on love. I'm thinking of that text in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is talking about the end times and what they will be like. And he basically says, you're going to be flogged and you're going to be hauled off and you're going to be put in prison and so on. And and uh, it says that uh, many will fall away and and in fact, you will be hated by many. And then it says, and the love of some will grow cold. It's a tough time. To love your brother and to stick with them when your brother's in jail and going to visit that brother may mean that they now look at you as one of him. You're now on the list, so to speak. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, there are other kinds of hard times. It seems to me that in the church at Ephesus, there was doctrinal departure, and, and uh Consequently, there was the need for scrutinizing uh, people in terms of their teaching and their doctrinal position, and there is nothing wrong with that. But as a as a friend of mine used to say, it's hard for a watchdog to smile. And, and there's just a way in which when you become so oriented to defending the faith, there is a way in which some people get mean in doing that. You know, there are different kinds of watchdogs and pit bulls are probably not the standard for Christians. But I know some that are just like that. And so they need, like all of us, we all need love for one another. Why does brotherly love come first? Well, it seems to me it's the key to everything else. That's the way it's laid out in this text. Verse 1 is the basis for everything that follows. You Remember in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So what that's saying is, if you and I have genuine love in our hearts for one another, we will do the right thing. We will do the right thing if we have genuine love for one another. So having the attitude and disposition of loving our brothers and sisters predisposes us in the direction of doing what's right. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We won't all and we won't automatically do what's right, but we're headed in the right direction. And it seems to me that's why our author puts it uh, first in the list. So the first manifestation then of brotherly love comes in the form of hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to strangers. You know, we—that's—I've sometimes heard people uh, say in the in the arena of spiritual gifts. Well, it's almost like they'll either say, "Well, I just have the gift of helps," and right beside it is hospitality. Meaning, I just can't do anything else, but I could, you know, I could fix a roast or, or whatever. And, and, and they downplay that, but the scriptures make a lot of, of this thing uh, that we know as hospitality. Genesis eighteen: Abraham takes those guests that come his way, who at that moment in time are are strangers to him. Now we know they're going to be a couple of angels, <laughs> you know, some, uh, and, and our Lord Himself in that mix. It seems, but at the point where he shows the hospitality, he does not know who they are. They're just strangers. When you come to Genesis 19, Lot then receives those angels and brings them into his home. Again, that is a characteristic of someone who has faith. In in, uh, Genesis chapter 24, when the servant has been sent with very clear instructions about the right kind of wife, the servant prays and he says, God... I'll know if she's the right woman by asking her if she will give me water and she offers to water my camels and and the whole group uh, uh, that's there. And that's what she does. Now, folks, that isn't the way it usually works. I want to just get that clear in your minds. Typically, if a stranger had come up to a, a young woman and said, I'd like some water, she'd show him the door. And so this was a remarkable thing, and it again indicates how much this servant saw hospitality as being a critical element in someone uh, that was going to be obedient and following God. If you want to take the flip side of the coin, you would go to, to uh, uh, Judges chapter 19. The interesting thing about that story, everybody remembers it in the terms of, you know, he cuts up, finally he cuts up his concubine in 12 pieces and sends her around the kingdom... But the interesting thing about that story is, when this young Levite goes to retrieve or to woo back his concubine, it's clear that her father is a pagan or at least it's clear to me, that he's a pagan and he's not one of the people of God. And yet, this father just won't let this guy get away. And so we keep saying, well, eh, it's late at night. Why don't you just stay till tomorrow and and whatever. And he keeps delaying him and delaying him. And and the old saying, you know, guest is like a fish in three days he stinks. The father-in-law doesn't seem to think so. He'd have kept him there forever. And yet, when they begin to make their way back to the people of God and they come to; they want to get to Gibeah, when they come to this Benjamite town, what happens? Nobody welcomes them and invites them in. And indeed, once they come into the place and that old man, who's not from the city, invites them in, then the people of the city turn into Sodom and Gomorrahites and they want to abuse this man rather than to care for him. That's when Israel's paganness is crystal clear hospitality. When you look then in the law at Exodus and Leviticus and you see the, the, the instructions that are given with regard to strangers, God says to Israel, in effect, you be kind to strangers and you treat them like yourself. And don't you have a double standard for these strangers? You remember that you were once an alien and you treat them right. So God has a great compassion and care for the strangers. And in fact, Leviticus comes up with that expression, love him as yourself. So it's very clear in the law. When you come to Matthew, uh, chapter 25, remember Jesus is talking about when the hard times are coming. And and he talks about all of the difficulties. and, And in verse 35, he says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. How do you know the difference between a sheep and a goat? And and the answer is by the way in which believers evidence their care in part toward strangers. That's one of the things that sets them apart. The cup of cold water and these kinds of things are are all involved uh, in that. Uh, in Acts, uh, all through the book of Acts, you see this hospitality. In Acts chapter 2, remember, they're eating their meals and sharing their meals together uh, from house to house uh, and sharing their goods with one another. In Acts 16, uh, Lydia, when she comes to faith, immediately says to Paul and his companions, stay with me in my house. Hospitality was the immediate manifestation. Even the case with the Philippian jailer. After that Philippian jailer comes to faith and is baptized, they're sitting at his meal table. Not back in their cell, sitting at his dinner table, because that's a mark of the believer. Romans chapter 16, in verse 5, you see one of those many instances where it talks about the church which is in their house. The church often met in houses, so hospitality was critical. Uh, in that instance, and in many others, when you come to first Timothy uh, chapter three, verse two, uh, and Titus chapter one, verse eight, you find that hospitality towards strangers is a qualification for elders, so leaders in the church are to be characterized by that. that must be an important thing. Chapter five, verse ten of First Timothy, those widows who would be put on the list for full support are those who must have been women who showed hospitality to strangers that's one of the qualifications for the church now caring for her is that she cared for others remember in third john chapter uh, well third john chapter 1 verses 5 through 12 it talks about those who are traveling about from various places and he says you are to receive them so these traveling preachers needed to be taken in and taken care of, and that was another manifestation of hospitality. It is important for me, I think, to underscore this is hospitality to strangers. Now, that is not to, to uh, set aside hospitality to those we know. It's a good thing. But I, my experience has been, and, and this is, uh, over all of my lifetime, it is a lot easier for Christians to invite their buddies over for dinner. It is a lot easier, and, I, and, I, and I'm, now I'm not pointing fingers at anybody other than myself, but, but it's easier for me if I go into the gym and, and get in line for the donuts and, and, and the goodies there. When I have to make my decision, who will I stand next to? Who will I engage in conversation? It's easier to speak to people we know. But that's not what this text says Says to us. We are to be hospitable to strangers. Now, what would that look like at CBC? What are some of the examples or instances or opportunities that might be here? Let me just give you a few. Uh, The Global Proclamation Academy. Right? Is gonna be coming up where, where, uh, church leaders are being brought in, uh, to the seminary. Uh, Ramesh Richard is the one who, who heads this up. They're gonna be brought to the seminary for, for about three weeks and they're gonna receive teaching and whatever and be sent back to their, their homeland. Uh, they, they have asked, uh, and they ask every year for, for houses where these men may go and stay for a weekend or whatever, and, and it's an opportunity. They're strangers. But you need to understand, this is these, they may not be angels unaware, but these are people who are going to go out and have an impact uh, around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is for us to be able to do that. Richardson is among us, and he came to us as a total stranger. Is that not right? We did not know him other than Scott Cunningham telling us about him. What a privilege it's been for us to be a part of his life uh, for, for these years and in the years to come. Uh, International Students Incorporated. Now, these may not be believers, but... There are many who come to our country from other places who are strangers and there are some in this body who have stepped out and invited them into their homes and uh, shown hospitality to them. And then of course there are visitors. And and visitors in our body they ought to be just overcome they, that we ought to be just tripping all over ourselves to get to them to welcome them, embrace them into our fellowship and into our community. Uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, showing our Lord's love to them. Then in verse 3, remember the persecuted and the imprisoned. Now, I think it's important, and, uh, and I, I hear these verses in in Matthew and, uh, and here used for uh, prison ministry. And you know I've, I've been involved in the years past with prison fellowship, and I've been to a lot of prisons, but... I don't think those are primary texts. These are primary texts for us going to prisons in general. As I understand this, this is talking about believers identifying with other believers who have been put in prison and and primarily because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you'll see that back in chapter 10. That's what he said. You've identified with those people in that way, he talks about brotherly love, verse one, and that assumes that they are indeed brothers or sisters in Christ. And then he says in verse three, "As though we were with them." In other words, we're identifying with them. Now, I, I think it's it's a little harder to go to a prison and here's somebody who's who's uh, serving a, a life sentence for murder, and to say, you know, I'm I'm with one of you. Well. I've said to guys in prisons, but for the grace of God, I could have been sitting where you're sitting. That's true. But you don't really identify with their crime. And and yet, if they are believers who are suffering for their faith in Christ, you can identify with them. And they are one in the body, as you see in verse 3. Again, Matthew chapter 25 is speaking about, in verses 36 and 40, is talking about believers showing their care toward other believers who are experiencing uh, persecution for their faith. And then you just think practically of Philippians, and you see the Philippian saints uh, who have a compassion toward Paul and who send Epaphroditus, they send a gift. It is their opportunity to identify with Paul in his affliction. And you know how encouraging it is to him from that epistle. So who would such sufferers be today, and what is our obligation to them? And I say this may come close to home soon. I read an article sometime this last week or two about a a pastor in this country who is now serving time for refusing uh, to do something which was clearly unbiblical. There are going to be days, my friend, that are coming when, <laughs> I hope I'll see some of you, <laughs> when they, when, or, or you'll see me when, when the day comes when we literally have to decide, are we going to stand for the Word of God or are we going to go to jail? And, and I'm talking about things like calling homosexuality sin, about saying, uh, things about, uh, the, the unborn fetus and those things. They're things for which? We, we, any of us, may in days to come find ourselves in trouble. Think of Jeff Humphreys in Indonesia. I was thinking about that. We really need to put Jeff's email address back in the bulletin. Here's a man who's been put in in prison uh, with a death sentence, as you know. So far as, as we can tell and all believers who have been involved can tell and even unbelievers who have looked at his case, it's just not true. He's really there for his faith in Jesus. Jeff is a real person, and, and we know of him, and we have a responsibility to him. So we need to be thinking about that. I was thinking about Ali Master and his, uh, his presentation to us in the micro loans that are given. These are loans that are given to persecuted Christians. Christians in a Muslim country who suffer because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That may be one opportunity. Uh, our partnership in prayer uh, for uh, Sudan and uh, that we've been involved in, and of course there are other opportunities as well. I, I happen to subscribe to World Magazine online, and this is actually the May 9th uh, edition which hasn't yet reached us in magazine form. But this is an article by a pastor from Zimbabwe, um, and he talks about the the nightmare that's going on in that country. Uh, Doctors are almost uh, gone, uh, and and healthcare workers, schools, colleges uh, are are shut down. It's just absolutely nightmarish. And and uh, I want you to listen to what he says. The result is a growing national need, a growing mass of people in need, and a growing challenge to our fledgling government of national unity, but also greater opportunity for the people of God to be his heart, his hands, his feet, and make a difference. And by his spirit and through the heart of his son, people of God are rising up to meet needs, providing food for thousands each month, coordinated food distribution to sister churches, helping with fertilizer to rural communities, providing a volunteer 80-year-old doctor for, uh, through him uh, medical service free to poor people once a week, uh, using medicines donated from friends outside, assisting people with payment of school fees, hospital bills, cleaning our streets, and seeking a variety of ways to be salt and light as the Lord desires. He points out that everybody still gets a garbage bill, they haven't collected garbage for months, but everybody gets, gets their garbage bill. There is no garbage collection. And so the cholera and all of these things are coming along. And, and I think what I'm saying to you, and, and by the way, it's not something that hasn't been said by uh, leaders in our body before, but I, I find myself that in very unpleasant situations I just tend to look the other way and, and not to really be informed, But but... Just magazines like World Magazine, other other sources of information can tell us what we ought to know. How is it that we are going to identify with people as though we were there when we don't know what there is? Is, is that not true? I mean, I think we've really got to look at that. And I think we have to say to ourselves, is there something God wants us to do about that? All right, honor marriage. I'm going to say this in two parts. Number one is honoring the institution of marriage. That is, marriage as a divine institution that he's given to us. In those days, and this is probably true for us today, but there were those in the, in the believing community who had a disdain for marriage. And you remember 1st Timothy chapter 4 and, and verses 1 and following talk about those who forbid marriage and forbid certain foods as though marriage was somehow wrong. Well, that obviously sets up saints for all kinds of difficulties. And there were those in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 who said, well, marriage may be okay, but sex is wrong. Well, that sets one up for other issues uh, and problems as well. And then there were those who just took marriage lightly. And when you see the question asked of our Lord in Matthew chapter 19, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Marriage wasn't taken very seriously. The commitment Of marriage, the permanence of marriage, the fact that it's a divine institution. Some abused marriage, and by that I'm talking about the kind of thing that we read about in 1 Peter 2 and 3. And and I include chapter 2, because chapter 2 begins by talking about slaves and their submission to their masters, and, and Peter makes it clear, not just the kind ones, but to the abusive ones. And then he uses the example of our Lord Jesus and his suffering without saying a word in retort. Weak people who can't fight back often talk back. We learned that from our children. And, and, and it's still going on. And he says, that's not the way to deal with it. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. And then he comes to women and says, likewise, women, you wives, are to live with your husband in a way and I think you can paraphrase it, in a way that honors them. And by the way, if you go back to early 1 Peter 2, it says that you are to honor those to whom honor is due. Honor is, a, is, is one evidence of true submission. All right, I'm going to pause for a minute and say something about this uh, outside of the context of marriage, but where Peter does in the context of government. If we are truly submissive to the government under which we live, we ought to speak about our leaders in honorable terms. Now, I'm I'm talking to myself now, not just everybody else. We need to speak with honor about those who are leaders over us, even when we strongly disagree, as I certainly do. Uh, Four, same-sex marriage today. How can one honor marriage and somehow capitulate in such a way as to say marriage could be between people of the same sex? How could that possibly be true? When our Lord himself instituted marriage, if we're going to honor marriage as an institution, we better honor marriage the way God defined it. And that's pretty clear to me in Scripture. And then honoring our our marriages as Christians. That has to do with the permanence of our marriages. But not just that. Some people may may teeth grittingly endure. It seems to me that the goal for marriage ought to be union and communion because, again, it speaks of the relationship of Christ and his church. Purity in the marriage relationship. That's what he's talking about here. Let the marriage bed be held in honor. And then he talks about the marriage bed being undefiled. So it's clear that he understands marriage and sex go together. Nothing wrong with that. But then he says that sex must be manifested by true uh, purity. Uh, I'm going to skip the honoring our mate because I kind of already referred to that. And and then ask the question, how is this instruction about marriage related to brotherly love? We don't have time to go into 1 Thessalonians 4 fully, but if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, basically he says this. Paul says, a significant part of your sanctification has to do with your sex life. Now, I'm talking about your sex life in marriage and outside of marriage in terms of what you won't do and don't do. But there's something about our Christian faith and living by the Spirit that manifests itself in every dimension of our lives, including marital, physical relationships. And then he says, in effect, we ought to live with our, we ought to possess our vessel in honor and sanctification, and there's some discussion amongst scholars about that, but it seems to me whether it's my vessel or whether it's my wife's vessel, uh, or let's just say better, both. We ought to, we ought to be physically honoring to Him. And then it talks about not, in effect, sinning against your brother by doing that. He, let me, let me put it to you in as simple terms as I can. First Thessalonians chapter four, Ephesians chapter five, where it talks about love and then it immediately goes into the subject of immorality. Our world has turned love upside down. And basically the word love, L-O-V-E, is now used for immorality. Is that not right? When when you hear love on television, you, you, you almost automatically say, We better think about some other channel. It's not the kind of love we're talking about. Biblical love is pure in terms of sexuality. It is restrictive, it is exclusive. And, and I think we have to give more thought to that um, because it is clear that we need to honor God in our marriages. And that's one of the ways in which we persevere. That's one of the ways in which we endure. You know, I, I know that people don't have a lot of respect for Lot, and I, given my reputation with Jonah and some others, I guess I ought to pick on him. But it says, Righteous Lot, his soul was vexed. His righteous soul was vexed. I, th- I think, frankly, I-, I find myself that I've just kind of gotten used to it. And I'm not sure that I really react uh, uh, to, to the immorality that's, that's flagrant in our world today as, as I should. Okay, maintain a lifestyle that is free from the love of money. Verses 5 and 6. It is clear to me... In, in this text and in all the texts that deal with, with uh, financial wealth, this is not an indictment uh, against having material things. It is not an indictment uh, of having uh, a good job. It is not an indictment about whether or not you have a bank account or or any of as so far as I can see, of that. It is talking about the love of money. And some of the most <laughs> greedy people I know are the people who don't have it and wish they did. And, and to me, it's just as wrong to not have money and love it as it is to have money, because it's that desire for money that's going to lead one down a trail that's that's uh, has all kinds of problems. But First Timothy. Uh, chapter 3 talks about elders being free from the love of money. First Timothy 6 is talking about freedom from the love of money. For the love of money, not the possession of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think we ought to be able to say a hearty amen to that. Secondly, notice that it's an issue of lifestyle. Your way of life. Some uh, the the NET Bible says your conduct. The ESV and the CSB say your life, and ASB says your character. Uh, but basically, it's it's your lifestyle. We develop lifestyles that predispose us in certain directions. And so we need to be looking at our lifestyle and saying, is my lifestyle a lifestyle of indulgence? Is my lifestyle a a, a lifestyle of, of accumulation, of greed, of hoarding, whatever? Now, you have to remember, these people are living in times when their houses and whatever have been taken away for their identification with other believers and for their identification with Christ. So we're not talking about accumulating much. <laughs> we're talking about hanging on to what little you got. Uh, and and so he's saying we ought to be looking at our lifestyle to see whether or not it is one that mo- is marked by a love of money. So the key is contentment, as you will see elsewhere. Being content with what God has given to us. Believing that what God has given me is sufficient. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, I have learned to be content, whether that be in plenty or whether that be in little. I have learned to be content in the circumstances in which God has placed me. But it's faith that's the basis. And and I want to look at those quotes that, that come to us in in this last couple of verses. Uh, And there actually are three instances where the the theme of I will never leave you or forsake you come. And and I think they're interesting. First is Genesis 28 verse 15. A lot of the commentaries pass by this one and I did too until one of the commentators pointed it out. But remember, this is when Jacob is fleeing uh, to to, uh, Mesopotamia because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And when he has the dream, God basically says to him, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to bring you back. I will not leave you or forsake you. And the context there is going into a foreign land, in effect, living as a foreigner, and then coming back. God is going to place him in that promised land as he had said. He will take care of him. And we know from the story of Jacob, God did. God not only saved and spared his life, he came back prosperous from God's hand. And then there's Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. This is when the Israelites, second generation of Israelites, are ready to, to to move in and possess the land. And you remember at Kadesh Barnea, they lacked the faith. They thought of the giants in the land that were gonna that were gonna uh, wipe them out. They feared, and God says. When you go, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And what he's saying is, The land that I promised to you is a land you're going to get because I will not abandon you. Now, in the light of what we just read, uh, that, that the Old Testament saints looked for this city that was going to come after their death, as you look at, at the uh, Mount Zion that is contrasted, the heavenly Mount Zion, that is contrasted with Mount Sinai, it it seems to me what it's saying in the context is, I've promised a city to you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. You will reach that city. And then Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, again, that same commitment now to Joshua. He's going to be with Joshua and the people of God to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. Then there's Psalm one eighteen, uh, verse six, and we don't have to go into we don't have time to go into that in depth. But the bottom line is that the psalmist has come to see. Uh, oh, by the way, this is really fascinating to me because he's going to say, in just a verse or so, that that uh, that he that the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look what it says uh, when there when there's praises. It says in verse one, in verse two, in verse three, and verse four, second stanza, it says, his loving kindness is everlasting. And then based upon the fact that the psalmist has called in his distress and he knows that God answers, then he says, why should I fear men? What can men do? The God in whom I trust does not leave me nor forsake me. He will Protect me. He will provide for me. So why fear men? Even though men may, may may be oppressive and all of that, why fear them? Trust in God. So we have uh we better slip down to our conclusion. Notice something about these, these uh words that we've been given in terms of trusting God. Notice that virtually all of them are qualifications for elders. You notice that hospitality, not not addicted to money, uh, all of these things, their, their marital life, managing their their households well, and all of that, all of these things are things that ought to characterize our leaders. And and all of your, some of you, all of you, but the elders are saying, why? Because the next verses are going to say, imitate your leaders. The leaders are to be people who are characterized by these manifestations of loving one another. They are. But they are to be that way so that other people see what it looks like and follow their example. These are instructions for all of us and we ought to be obedient to them. Chapter 10 and verse 25 says these things have already been taking place in the life of the Hebrew believers. They need to continue to do them. And I would say we as a church, I think, have been known to be a church where we care for one another. But the danger is that somehow we can slack off in that. And this text is saying let it remain. Let it endure. Let it persevere. I was thinking uh, about this. Uh, this text and, and how it, it speaks uh, to us, and it, what can you say? Th- th- there's no there's no deep meaning, you know, in the sense of some hidden meaning in the words and whatever. This is basic stuff. This is basic stuff, and it all shakes down to this. By the way, one last thought: we are the strangers. We are the strangers. I was thinking about this as, as, and, and, and all of a sudden Ephesians chapter 2 came to my mind and it talks about those of you, remember, it differentiates the, the, the Jews from, from the Gentiles and it says you were alienated from the promises of God. That's us, that's us. And so he's addressing Jewish Christians about how they should deal with strangers. One of the great problems in the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament days was how Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians got along. And I just couldn't help but chuckle to myself that as we read this text today, most of us, most of us are strangers. And this word is addressed to Jewish believers about how they are to embrace those who come to them. But the application for us is the same. We may have people who come to faith uh, out of various religious systems and cultures. We are to embrace those new believers into the church and welcome them in and care for them. So I simply ask you this, as, as I think about this text as well. What does God want us to do? What does God want us to do in, in, in the manner of showing our love for one another? Because this is the mark, Scripture says, of a true believer. Father, we thank you for this text, and we ask that you would work in our hearts as Christians to love one another and to do that in a persevering way. Help us to welcome strangers, to identify with those around the world today who are giving their lives and spending years in prison for simply naming the name of the Lord Jesus. Help us to identify with them and help us to minister to them in the ways that you bring to us. Help us to be pure in our marriages and help us to be free from the love of money. Help us to see the resources you've given to us as those that are given to care for others. In Jesus' name, amen.